Good morning. How's everybody doing? I don't know. Uh, some of you remember Patty Hill. She's visiting us from Colorado. Yay. She was with us many years. And then she moved away, and now she has, is visiting. That's great. Uh, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. I want to thank Brian and Sean and Dina for leading us in the beginning of this Advent, this coming season, reminding us of the hope we have in Jesus Christ, helping to uh, prepare our hearts for the celebration of uh, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, along with Advent, so this we have, we'll have our Advent celebration every morning, and I think we'll do just a uh, get that out there. We'll, I think next week is peace, and then joy, and then love are the four candles. And then the center candle it represents Christ and His, his coming. Uh, so along with Advent, in preparation for our hearts to remind us of Christ's coming over the next five weeks, including uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas morning, which falls on Saturday evening, Sunday morning, uh, we'll be looking at the Christmas story recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And by story, I don't mean a made-up tale. I mean the true story of God's love in sending His one and only Son into this world to bring salvation to all who would trust in Him. It's, it's His story. It's His, God's, Christ's story that we'll be looking at and, at, and of all the Gospels, Luke really provides us with the most comprehensive look at this story. In your notes, I've included an outline of what we'll be covering. We'll begin today with Luke 1, 1 through 25. There we'll see Luke's purpose for the Gospel. We'll just cover that a little briefly. And the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. So just... Right up front, there's two Johns in the New Testament, John the Baptist and then John the Apostle. So we'll, we'll actually be reading some of John the Apostle from his gospel, uh, but this is John the Baptist. He didn't write any gospels that I'm aware of. Uh, then in, cha- in, in chapter 1, verse 26 through 38, comes the announcement of Jesus' birth, followed in verses 1 through Uh, Chapter 1, 39 through 56, with a connection between Jesus and John as Mary visits Elizabeth, Mary the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth the mother of John, uh, both pregnant, they visit, and Mary magnifies the Lord following that. Then in chapter 1, still, chapter 1's really long, uh, verses 57 through 80 comes the birth of John, and then Zechariah, his father's prophecy, followed chapter 2, the highlight. 1 through 20, the birth of Jesus, and then the angels praise. Now, if you notice, there's a pattern here. The announcement of John, the announcement of Jesus, the birth of John, the birth of Jesus, with a link between uh, the two as pregnant Mary and Elizabeth meet each other. Evidently, it seems Luke wants us to see the importance of John in the life of Jesus. John's the, John, his, his announcement, his... Uh, his birth aren't recorded in the other Gospels. And, and as far as I know, there aren't any Christmas songs about John the Baptist. Anybody, anybody know? I don't know them all. But, and so he begins, Luke begins his story, the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, by focusing on Zechariah, 
John the Baptist's father as he receives the announcement of John's birth. And I think we'll see some reasons for doing that when we get to that story. But before the story begins, Luke tells us the purpose of his gospel. Beginning in verse 1, we read, Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for, the, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This preface tells us Luke's purpose in writing both this gospel that we'll be looking at and uh, the book of Acts. So it's, he does a two-volume set. The, 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 the story of Jesus and then the story of uh, the church, really, of, of Christ, the Holy Spirit's work after the, the death and resurrection of Christ in the book of Acts. Both of which he addresses to this uh, guy named Theophilus. Theophilus was probably a Gentile who held some important office in Roman government. And Luke wants to show Theophilus that the Christian teachings, the things he's heard uh, about uh, Christianity about Christ are true. He doesn't want Theophilus's, Theophilus's, that's a tough one. He doesn't want his faith to be a, a, just a blind leap into the dark. He wants it to be based on sufficient evidence. So Luke prefaces his gospel with reasons why he, Luke, should be respected as a reliable historian. He points out three things. First, in verse one, that he has many written sources. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative, he says. Verse 2, he said, Luke says, he has direct access to eyewitnesses to confirm his work, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. And third, in verse 3, he says that this account is the product of thorough, careful, and patient research, having followed all things closely from time past to write an orderly account for you. So what we'll look at in Luke's record of Christ's birth, that's the part we'll be covering, is an accurate, verifiable, well-thought-out, well-written, not to mention spirit-inspired history of what took place, with the purpose of verifying the truth of these events so that Theophilus, or really anyone, can put their trust in Jesus Christ. So, I'd encourage you, Bridges people, over the next five weeks, to engage with people like Theophilus, those you know who have questions about the Christian faith, specifically those who are open to hearing uh, the truth about who Jesus is. It's, it's not Luke isn't addressing some, uh, some debating skeptic. He's somebody who's interested, Theophilus, and he just wants to verify these truths. Christmas is a great time uh, to introduce people to, to how and why Jesus came into our world. You can certainly invite them to join us here on Sunday mornings. That's what we'll be doing. Or you can communicate with them directly what the Bible teaches about the Christmas story. And that brings us to the first part of the story, the prophecy, or really I think a better word that I thought of later was promise. I don't know why. The prophecy or promise of John's birth. All three are going to be P's just so you know, but uh, promise is probably a better P word. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this story, verses 5 through 25, pausing 
in places, to gain insight and application, to learn lessons for us that are relevant for us that Luke uh, uses in this story of the announcement of John's birth. Beginning in verse 5 of Luke 1, we read, In the days of Herod, king of Judah. So this is just a little intro. But by beginning with uh, the king, he's setting it in time when this took place. Uh, He's also doing a little foreshadowing, I think. This is Herod the Great. Uh, He's the guy that restored the temple, if if you know that. But but his son was a guy named Herod Antipas. Uh, He's the one that will, if you know the story of John, he will behead John the Baptist. At the announcement of his birth, we're reminded of John's ultimate uh, earthly fate. He would die in service to his Lord. So in the days of Herod, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Zechariah very appropriately introduces this story because his name means the Lord has remembered. There had been approximately 400 years since the last Old Testament prophet, uh, Malachi. And now the Lord has remembered. Not that God ever forgets, but at this time, after 400 years, He's about to do something new. Something promised in the Old Scriptures. Something prophesied in the Old Testament. And He begins with something old. As we'll see, Zechariah and Elizabeth were an old couple And both were from the tribe of Levi. From the time of Moses and his brother Aaron, who were Levites, God commanded that the Levites would be the priests of the people of Israel. And during the time of King David, the priesthood was divided into 24 different groups, one of which was Abijah, who was the guy, the head of that particular family at the time. Each group oversaw temple affairs at different times throughout the year. And then verse 6, still speaking of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Luke wants us to see from the beginning the positive character of these two people. I think this is because as the story continues, if you know the story, the character of Zechariah will be called into question because of his sin of unbelief. So what does Luke mean uh, that they were righteous before God and walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord? That sounds like they were not just practically, but perfect in every way, right? But as we know from Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes Zechariah and Elizabeth. And as we'll see in the case of Zechariah, he's clearly not perfect. Therefore, being righteous and walking blamelessly in all God's commandments, does not mean that they'd achieve sinless perfection. Instead, it means their lives were characterized by faithfully keeping the commandments of God. The normal course, the path of their life, the direction of their lives was obedience to God. And when they did sin, when they did deviate, they didn't remain in their sin. They didn't continue in their sin. They didn't make it a pattern in their life. They repented and trusted in God for forgiveness. So when Luke says they walked in God's commandments and statutes, he doesn't mean they never once broke a commandment. They never even coveted. He means breaking commandments, sin, was not the normal or dominant part of their life. 
Also, even though the word blameless sounds like uh, they did nothing wrong, it probably means they lived in such a way to give no one, including God, an occasion to hold anything against them. They, they quickly repented, quickly asked for forgiveness. In 1 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul uses the same language for himself and others who were with him. He says, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Yet Paul clearly denied his own sinless perfection. Philippians 3.12, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So the idea of righteousness, of blamelessness, of obedience to God's commandments implies not necessarily uh, sinless perfection, though that's a goal to shoot for, but quick and speedy amends for all wrongs. They were righteous, blameless, quick to repent and seek forgiveness from both God and man. And isn't that uh, what we want to be said of us? We want to be people who are righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And we too, in the power of the Holy Spirit, can live lives characterized by obedience in all things. And when disobedience comes, as it will in the life of Zechariah, and it does for us, we too can be quick to repent and ask for forgiveness before the Lord. So in verse 6, Luke wants us to know that the unbelief that Zechariah will display is not his normal response to God. Then in verse 7 we read, But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. This reminds us of another old barren couple, Abraham and Sarah, back in the beginning of the people of Israel. Like Abraham and Sarah, before them, Zechariah and Elizabeth were old. Elizabeth was barren, and they too would receive a promise, a prophecy concerning the birth of a son. Verse 8, now while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when the division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So apart from special festivals, each of the priestly divisions only served in the temple two weeks a year. So this is during Zechariah, the time, Abijah's divisions, two weeks. And because of the large number of priests in each division, each individual priest would burn incense in the daily sacrifice only once in their lifetime. Some priests never even got the opportunity. So this is a major big deal for Zechariah. This is like the pinnacle of his career. He's going to burn incense before the Lord. But little does he know, it's about to get even bigger than he thought. Verse 10. And the whole multitude of people, so there's people gathered around, were praying outside of the, at the hour of incense, special time. And there appeared to him, Zechariah, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So when Zechariah went into the temple uh, to burn the incense, the other priests would leave, and he alone would perform the, the, the offering of the, at the altar of incense, which was located, by the way, immediately before the veil leading into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, which the high priest would enter into once a year uh, and do some stuff there. And as he burns incense... Before the Lord, which symbolizes the burning of incense, symbolizes the prayers of God's people. 
the people in Mass are praying, and at this holy time, an angel of the Lord appears, and 400 years of silence ends. Verse 12, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. This is a familiar scene, right? If you're familiar with angels in the Bible. We saw it in Daniel as well. In the Bible, whenever an angel shows up, people almost always experience fear. It's kind of shocking. I'm I'm curious to know what these guys really look like, right? And the angel must instruct them, okay, settle down, uh, don't be afraid. Also, as we saw in Daniel, when angels show up, they usually bring a message from God that seems to be, uh, angel means messenger, they're messengers from God. And here the angel, angel's message begins with the fact that Zachariah's prayers have been heard. Now what prayers is he speaking of? We would assume, if you just read it, it looks like, it seems like, that the angel is referring to Zechariah's prayers for a son. But it's possible, maybe even more likely, in the whole context, that the angel is speaking of Zechariah's prayers at that moment. What's he praying right then? Remember, Zechariah is burning incense, symbolizing the prayer of God's people. He's ministering as a priest. He's doing his job as a priest on behalf of his people. And part of his prayers would include uh, prayers for redemption and deliverance of Israel, including prayers for the coming Messiah. But whatever the uh, prayer the angel is referring to, whether prayers for a son or prayers for the redemption through the Messiah, the answer to the prayer begins with the birth of John. For John would be obviously the son of Zechariah, answer to that prayer, and he would be the forerunner. Uh, the preparer of the way for the Messiah who would redeem his people. And as the angel announces that Elizabeth, who is barren, will bear a son, we're reminded of God's power and his sovereignty. That God is sovereignly at work in the birth of John as he will be in the birth of Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin, and John was born of an aged, barren woman. And both miraculous events are promised, prophesied in advance by an angel, showing the power and sovereignty of God. And this would be important uh, uh, to understand for Theophilus or anyone contemplating uh, Christianity, contemplating putting their trust in Jesus Christ. It wouldn't be easy for a Roman official to believe that some poor Jewish teacher who was executed as a criminal, was in fact the Son of God who entered our world to be our Lord and Savior. So Luke starts at the beginning to show that this man, Jesus, and his forerunner, John, were not ordinary people. That the sovereign God ordained their births, therefore he ordained their destinies. Which for John, as we mentioned, would be a premature death of beheading, and for Jesus, a premature death of crucifixion. The point is that in both of these lives, John and Jesus, God was in control. Now, God is in control of all things, but we're making this really clear. Luke's making this really clear in the life of John and then in the life of Jesus. And something unexpected and stupendous is beginning to happen in the world. God is at work. 
How does uh, uh, C.S. Lewis put it? Aslan is on the move in the Chronicles of Narnia. That's what he's kind of uh, illustrating. God is at work. God is on the move. Verse 14, of of John's birth and the life, excuse me, of John's birth and life, the angel says, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. So the coming of John will bring joy, uh, a theme throughout Luke, by the way, and gladness, not only to Zechariah and Elizabeth, but to many. Why? Well, the angel gives many reasons. He's, he sort of lists these things off. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be fully devoted to the Lord, symbolized by keeping himself from wine and strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. John is the only person in the New Testament of which it's said he's filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. John was clearly created for and chosen by God for the work that he'd called him to. And his greatness would later be affirmed by Jesus. In Matthew eleven eleven. we read, Truly, Jesus speaking, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John would be, he was clearly a man of God, chosen by God, set apart for a great and special purpose. Then in verse 16, the reasons uh, why many will rejoice over John continue. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord's people for the Lord a people prepared. Remember I said the, the last Old Testament prophet was, who was it? Malachi or Malachi if you're Italian. And the final verse of Malachi, the final two verses of Malachi are these. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the heads of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. John would fulfill the beginning of this prophecy by Malachi 400 years before. He will go out in the spirit of, and the power of Elijah, the great prophet of old. His preaching will cause repentance and restoration in individuals and families. And most importantly, what Malachi doesn't mention, but the angel does, John will prepare the way for the Lord. Now we could spend a lot of time recounting how the gospel tells us that, that John did that. We could go to the baptism of Jesus and to other places. But let me just give you one verse that to me summarizes the preparing ministry of John the Baptist. In, in John chapter 1, verse 29, we read, again, John the Apostle, not John the Baptist. John writes, The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's it. In this one short sentence, John builds this bridge between the old and the new. Under the old covenant, the people of God would year in and year out make animal blood sacrifices. Lambs would be slaughtered for their sins. But John says, behold, look everyone, listen up, Uh, focus here, the Lamb of God has arrived. 
The one who would fulfill the old and bring the new has come. The one who would become himself on the cross. The perfect blood sacrifice for the sins of the world. He's arrived. And with that, this statement and many others, John prepared the people for the coming of their Lord. And I must ask, as we anticipate and celebrate His coming, are you prepared? Are you prepared for the coming of the Lord? Have you surrendered to Him as both uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, your sins and mine? Have you surrendered to Him as the Lamb? Have you surrendered to Him as the Lord of your life? Is He the Lamb who takes away your sins? Is He the Lord who you seek to follow in righteousness and blamelessness as Zechariah and Elizabeth? If so, rejoice, celebrate His coming in the past as a, as, a, as a child to grow up and ultimately die for your sins. Rejoice, celebrate His coming into your life to personally bring forgiveness, cleansing, and righteousness. And rejoice and celebrate that He will come again, setting all things right in the world and in your life and my life. But if you're not prepared for His coming, if He's not your Lord and Lamb, then I'd call upon you, as Luke called upon Theophilus, that you would consider the words of this gospel, of this gospel of Luke, of this message this morning, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been, have been, are being taught, that you too might trust in Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's the purpose of looking at these things. That's the purpose Luke wrote them, and that's the purpose I'm telling you about them, that, that we could grow in our trust for Jesus Christ, that some could begin trusting Christ and others could continue to grow in their relationship and their trust in Christ. And that concludes the angel's announcement of John's birth. And Zechariah should have said, thanks for coming, looking forward to having a son, and moved on. But that's not what he did. And that brings us to the problem of Zechariah's unbelief. Verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel's angel, How shall I know this? Let me get the tone right because I think we, we know the tone here. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. My wife's old too. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news, buddy. We're going to look more closely at Zechariah's response shortly, but, but I want to point out that now we know the name of the angel of the Lord. It's our old friend from the book of Daniel, Gabriel. If you remember, Gabriel only appears four times in the Bible, twice in the book of Daniel, chapters 8 and 9. Uh, there he was explaining uh, Dan, the meaning of Daniel's prophetic visions, and twice in Luke chapter 1. First he appears to Zechariah, that's what we're looking at now, announcing the good news, the gospel of a son who would fulfill Old Testament promises and be the forerunner of the Messiah. And second, he'll appear in verse 26 to Mary, announcing the coming of the Lord Jesus. It seems Gabriel's job as one who stands in the presence, the very presence of God, is to help people understand what God is doing in this world. 
to explain, to bring news. Sometimes not so great news, if you remember Daniel. He, all the things that the angels explained, that, Dan, that Gabriel explained, were not the best of news. And sometimes good news, great news, amazing news to Zechariah and to Mary. And when Zechariah responds to this good news with unbelief, when he doubts the words of God's holy messenger saying, how shall I know this? The results are not positive. In verse 20, Gabriel says, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Your unbelief, just so you know, your unbelief isn't going to stop this from happening. Sometimes we believe if we believe enough, if we have enough faith, we can make this happen. Not so. God is going to do what God's going to do. And if we get on board, we can be blessed by it. But our belief or unbelief isn't going to stop God from doing his thing. There are consequences, though, to unbelief. And in Zechariah's case, they were immediate. So he's struck dumb, can't speak. In this moment, Zechariah did not believe God's promise from Gabriel. His circumstances were almost the same. Remember back to Abraham? When Abraham was promised a son, but Zechariah did not respond like Abraham. Of Abraham, Paul wrote in Romans 4.19, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Unlike Abraham, Zechariah received this promise from God, and he did waver in unbelief, and he suffered the discipline of the Lord. Now, if we look down a few verses, a similar promise will be given by Gabriel to Mary. He'll tell her that even though she's a virgin, she'll conceive and give birth to a son. And we'll look at that in more greater detail next week. But I want us to see the unavoidable contrast between Zechariah and Mary's response to God's promise to give them a child. In these two people, we see the right and the wrong way to respond to the promises of God. And I think Luke intends for us to contrast Zechariah's unbelief to Mary's faith because Zechariah's wife, in verse 45, commends Mary in a way that sounds a little bit like a criticism of her husband. She says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. My husband doubted. He didn't believe, but you did. We've seen the expression of Zechariah's unbelief. How shall I know this? But how did Mary's faith express itself? When the angel was finished predicting the miraculous birth of Jesus, Mary in verse 34 of Luke chapter 1 says, How will this be since I am a virgin? Note the contrast. It, it may seem a little subtle, but it, it's clear. Zechariah says, How can I know this? Mary says, How can this be? Zechariah asked for more evidence. What can you show me to verify this? Uh, Mary asked for an explanation. I, I don't understand how this can happen. And, that, and, and this suggests two lessons that we can learn. One from Zechariah, one from Mary. First, from Zechariah, we learn that it's possible to demand too much evidence before you believe in God's promises. Now, it's not wrong to want evidence, to want evidence for our faith. In fact, that's what Luke is doing with this gospel, remember? He's presenting the truth, the evidence of, of the life of Christ. Faith is not to be blind, just so you know. 
Belief is not groundless. But there's an evil in demanding signs beyond what a humble and open heart would require. Okay, you've answered that question. What about this? What about this? What about this? That's what, that's what we're arguing against here. That's what, uh, a little bit of what Zechariah was displaying. Luke clearly shows this later in his gospel. In chapter 1, I mean, excuse me, chapter 11, verses 29 through 32, he writes, When the crowds were increasing, he, Jesus, began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the end of judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone, something greater than Jonah is here. Understand this, Jesus is not belittling evidence for faith. He's exposing the heart, the hard and unrepentant heart of his contemporaries because they cannot see in his miracles and his character sufficient sign they just kept asking for more. Oh, you healed this. You said this. This is wonderful. But can you really do more? And this is a warning for us. Lest we, like Zechariah, demand too much evidence before we believe God's promises. How many of us, when we're experiencing uh, difficult circumstances, can't believe that God is working all things for our ultimate good? Until we get some relief or until someone explains something to us. We get a little extra evidence, and we say, okay, it's going to be okay. Oh, how often we, we fail to simply take God at His word. And therefore, we, we shouldn't be surprised when we experience the discipline of the Lord for our unbelief, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves. Zechariah says, I'm an old man, my wife's barren, advanced in years, I can't believe it. Let's not be like Zechariah. God wants us to learn from this text what Gabriel uh, said to Mary in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. It's clear from Luke's narrative that in times when, when we humans think something is impossible, God can and does sovereignly and powerly work to keep His promises. And so our response to His promises should be uh, to trust in Him. He says, trust me because I can and I love to do the humanly impossible. You can hear the heart of Luke going out to Theophilus. Trust him, Theophilus. Trust him. Don't, don't proudly insist on more signs than are necessary. Put your whole trust in God and in Christ. So that's the first lesson we learned from the contrast between Mary and in Zechariah's response, trusting God because it's possible and dangerous to insist on too much evidence before you believe. The second thing we learn from Mary is that it's okay to want and ask for explanations when we don't understand. Mary asked for an explanation. Zechariah says he can't be sure. Mary says she can't understand. Mary receives at least a, a partial explanation, which will speak more about next week, but Zechariah receives a rebuke 
and is made dumb by the angel. Luke's point, therefore, to Theophilus is, be like Mary when you hear about Jesus. Don't be, about, be like Zechariah. Mary was not accused of unbelief like Zechariah when she asked the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Mary saw the human impossibility of, uh, as clearly as Zechariah, but her heart did not reject the possibility in unbelief. She responded humbly, and she desired only to know how much an impossibility, how, how, how such an impossibility might take place. I infer from this that when our heart is right, God is never opposed to our seeking to understand His ways. We'll never understand everything in this age because, as Paul says, we see through a glass darkly. But what we can understand about the ways of God based on His revealed Word are vast and deep. He's given us a lot of information. What we must guard against is not that we study, that we probe the ways of God too deeply, but that we probe with a wrong attitude, a wrong spirit. A spirit of idle curiosity, a spirit of skepticism, spirit of what, what can I find that, that's wrong about this, but a spirit of earnest longing to know more of God's wisdom and humble readiness to be taught something new. This spirit pleases the Lord. That's what, that was Mary's spirit. And I think it's expressed clearly uh, by the father who sought Jesus for the healing of his demon-possessed son. He said, uh, Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us, help us. Jesus said to him, this is Mark chapter 9, verse 23, if I can, yeah, excuse me, if you can, it's like, what, are you doubting that I can do something here? All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe as far as, as I can. I believe and humbly I ask you to help my unbelief. Help me understand so I can fully believe. That's the kind of humility Mary had. That's the kind of humility that God loves. I don't get this, God. I'm not distrusting you. I just don't understand. Help me understand. Help me believe. From Mary, we learn that it's okay to want and humbly ask for explanations when we're perplexed. Now we come to verse 21. Zechariah has not believed the promise, and he is struck dumb. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. The people are outside of the temple court waiting for Zechariah. So they're praying. He's burning the incense. Uh, uh, he's going to come out and pronounce a blessing upon the people. And offering incense didn't take that long. So they're wondering, what's, what's the delay? And when Zechariah doesn't speak but makes some gestures, the people rightly conclude he's seen a vision. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. As Gabriel promised, 
Again, showing the sovereignty and power of God. God's promise, what do we talk about? God's promise or prophecy from the book of Daniel is just history written in advance. It will take place. God is not just uh, uh, looking into history. He's controlling it. So Elizabeth becomes pregnant. In that day, not having children was considered a divine punishment, but Elizabeth praised God that she, she will bear this reproach no more. And that brings us to the end of this uh, part of the story. The part of the Christmas story, the good news, that the one who would prepare the way for the Lord was coming. But I don't want us to leave without learning one final thing from Zechariah. I want us to remember that his unbelief, we kind of hammered on him, right? His unbelief, Mary's great, Zechariah sucks. Okay. I'm sorry, did I say that? You know? Uh, but we, I want to remember his unbelief was preceded by a life of godliness. And I want us to see that it was also followed by a life of godliness. His unbelief is similar to that of Peter's three denials of Christ. It's a temporary lapse, not a way of life. Remember, Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Not only that, remember verse 13 says that God was answering Zechariah's prayer when he promised him a son. So Zechariah was a righteous and prayerful man. But even the best of men and women fall into unbelief now and then. None of us trust God's promises perfectly all the time. Really, God, this is, this is for my good? I, how shall I know this? And thanks be to God, though we may have to endure some discipline for our unbelief, you know, discipline is a good thing, it's training, you know, oh, I can't speak for a time, I won't do that again, right? Zechariah says. But if we repent, after we don't believe, if we repent and continue to trust in God, God does not reject us. And if we don't repent and continue to distrust Him, then we were never truly His. While Zechariah followed through obediently and named the child John, verse 64 says, this is down in chapter 1, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, bless, and he spoke first thing, blessing God. He's not bitter, he's blessing. And verse, uh, bitter about his discipline, he's blessing God. And verse 67 goes on, and his father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Zechariah gets it now. It took some time, but he's got the picture. God is, in, God is doing a work of redemption here, and he began with Zechariah. So we see that Zechariah is a righteous and he's a blameless man. Then he has a little bit of unbelief. Then blessing God. Then we see him blessing God in the power of the Spirit. And the lesson for us is that we must not despair if we fall into unbelief. I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I didn't trust God. I can't believe I went this way when I knew God wanted me to do that. Instead, we must repent Accept God's forgiveness in Christ and go on blessing the Lord even more fervently because, because of His great mercy to us in our sinfulness. So that's the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. And as we conclude, I would encourage you 
I would encourage all of us to be those forerunners for the Lord, to prepare the way for His coming into the lives of the people in our world. To do as John did, proclaim to all who will listen, to all who have interest, not in a confrontational way, but in an informational way, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the sins of those who put their trust in Him. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank You for this, this beginning, this, new, this, this new, new time that we live in now, and we see its beginning as the angel comes to Zechariah. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn, Lord. I pray for myself, I pray for each one here, that, that in times of unbelief, we would, they would be quick, and, and we wouldn't have to experience too much discipline, but we would quickly repent and trust in you, Father. We thank you uh, for John and his coming and his announcement of, of Christ, and I pray that we can be those kind of people in our world that we would be the kind of people that would prepare the way for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ, to come into the lives of the, of the people we know and love. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, if you guys want to stand with me one last time as we get into our final song and our time of worship.